0: Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice.
1: What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in once again. We had a great conversation with Dr. Arash. He's one of the three co-founders of The Prehab Guys. They're a huge online platform of prehab and rehab. Um, We talked about the psychological aspect of rehab, business, goals, and more. So enjoy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
2: Yeah, so my name is Arash Maksudi. I am um, uh, one of the three... um, co-founders of of the prehab guys i mean now we've created a culture of prehab just trying to educate the public a little bit more about what it means to be proactive and taking control of your health where in today's day there's so much content that's out online and people don't really know how to decipher between high quality versus low quality content so what we've done is we've kind of took it amongst originally it was us three now we have a team of people that kind of help us with uh, portraying that message and allowing people to understand what it is that they need to be doing um, and feeling like they have more control of their health because, um, I mean, injuries are, are tough, uh, especially with how difficult it is, is in, in America going through these loopholes that the insurance has put on us. But essentially what we've done is tried to create a, a platform for people to educate and feel more powerful about. So how, did,
1: how and why did the prehab guy start
2: so we actually started as students like similar to you to you guys uh while we were in pt school and i think the the why kind of goes back to what i was saying before where we found there wasn't really too much high quality information we wanted to take it upon ourselves to provide that information to people and the how would be uh, the during school, we kind of found some time during one of our breaks to brainstorm and try to come out with an idea of how to push more evidence-based information. And from there, we made we made it uh, we made a schedule where every single day we have to post through social media. Mm-hmm. And from there, it was Instagram initially that kind of created a little bit of uh, traffic and engagement to our to our brand. And from there, it just started growing through different platforms. Now we have our website and we have our app and a couple other things as well. We have a podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's slowly started growing to the point where it's more than just a social media page. It's, it's a brand. It's a platform to allow people to uh, educate themselves.
1: It's awesome. So is that your main job or do you work yeah. as a DPT also? Well, now during
2: the quarantine, there's, there's no, uh, there's not much seeing people, but, uh, yeah, that's a good question. We've transitioned slowly to, to the point where it's now our full-time, uh, that's where most of our time is, is invested. I would say, uh, initially it was, it was the other way around where most of the time was spent in the clinic and slowly we've kind of transitioned to moving towards 50, 50 and now more time is spent with the online platform than seeing patients and clients. However, we always should be seeing patients and clients, and we've told ourselves that we're always going to be doing that because it's just how we're going to become better clinicians and how we're going to continue to push good content. Mm -hmm. Um, Even even some of the highest quality researchers that I've talked to, they all still see patients because that's the only way that they can test and tweak and learn themselves um, when they're actually out there
1: versus just staying in the lab. Yeah, like one thing is reading and knowing and understanding all of the research, but when it comes to practicing it, it's not as easy as it seems, right? Reading everything.
2: <laughs> no, no, not yeah. at all. Yeah, you you got you you've got to try, and it's not it's not black and white. That's the thing is in, in school and even in research. Sometimes people make it seem like if this is what's going on, this is the formula that you have to use to get someone out of a tendonopathy or uh, to get someone back to sport, but it's so much more complicated than that. And unless you really understand uh, what you're doing, you're never truly going to be able to adapt that to whoever it is in front of you.
0: Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah, I completely agree. Well, another thing is when you think about it, like these people get lost in the weeds with all the literature and they don't really ask themselves, like, does this even apply to most of the people I'm going to be seeing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And that, that's
2: why even for one of the biggest piece of recommendations that I give to uh, those that are interested in going into Cairo school or PT school or, or any, any type of graduate schooling is to get as much experience as possible prior to. Because I think the more database you have with clients and patients in your head, the more when you go through this didactic work, you can relate that content to people that you've seen prior to. PT school prior to Cairo school versus just hypothetically thinking of okay if this person was to come in with this patella tendon pain this is what i it's it's too hard to to visualize something like that uh, if you've seen someone beforehand with that pathology it's a lot more easier to be like okay that's what i would have done differently
0: right you mentioned that you started prehab guys because there wasn't a lot of great information out there Uh, Did you receive bad information in school and did you have to find it elsewhere to kind of make you, I guess, relevant in the space?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say that we had bad information in school. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would say there's things that I wanted to learn that school didn't provide me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I uh, like. For example, to take a step back, the content that I like to create is usually content that I'm already interested in in mm-hmm. so actually initially the content was kind of more because of myself i was interested in how to improve shoulder mobility or how to maximize a bench press or how to improve someone symptoms that has fai like these things are things that i was curious with mm-hmm. and i would take a deep dive in the literature and i would use myself as a subject and go through things and then i would just document and, and write an article and then mm-hmm. i if i was interested in that topic I'm sure a lot of other people would be interested in that topic as well. Yeah. And so from there, uh, I kind of, I mean, I can only do so much testing on myself, but as I see other clients and patients, I kind of, you, you know, use the literature on them and mm-hmm. and see what, what works. And then that's, what, that's another article right there. And I think that if I benefit from it, I want to make sure everyone else that's interested in that topic would also benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't try to say, I think what what, why people enjoy reading our content as well is that we don't like to push a specific train of thought or school of thought or a specific approach. It's very much here is the evidence. Here's what we think. um, And we separate what we know versus what we think versus versus just giving it to you like, hey, this is what you guys have to be doing for this. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think starting as students was, was A great idea for us because it was humbling and we didn't really push our opinions much it was more here's the evidence Mm -hmm. Uh, and and we've kind of continued to use that model where we use evidence as a as a foundation behind the content that we push
1: out i got a question what has been the toughest rehab case that you've worked on Mm. there's a lot lot, i'd say i'd say Yeah,
2: there's definitely, there's definitely some people that are just not going to get better and need more than conservative care. And those are people that, that may go get surgery, may go get injections. And, you know, even with those injections and and surgeries, maybe they don't get better. Um, a couple of pathologies I think that are sometimes the most difficult to treat, I'd say, uh. TOS is is oftentimes a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Chronic, any chronic injury uh, is is difficult, especially these like lateral epicondylalgia, medial these these things that have been there forever are oftentimes difficult, um, and it's just a long process to get back. Uh, sometimes the difficulty is not in the rehab; it's in convincing them to stay yeah. consistent with everything until mm-hmm. things until t- the symptoms start dying down. Um, but yeah, and then just neurological, just pain in, in general neuropathic pain mm-hmm. uh, those those are always difficult too especially combining that with chronic yes. pain it's it makes it very difficult
1: so when would you decide or when would you recommend them to go get surgery or a second opinion
2: yeah that's that's uh, very fair i'd say uh so when i see the, the day one i always try to create an expectation with what Rehab is going to look like for you, and I try to create goals and, and boundaries behind what's what's going to be happening and what you're going to notice differently in terms of mobility gains or strength gains or activity uh, activities that you are limited in now uh, and when you'll be able to get back to those. So I try to create a time frame, and if things aren't going as expected, whether that means things are getting worse or things are just plateauing or that person doesn't is not happy with where they are, that's when I try to seek some type of other opinion. Usually, Mm -hmm. it's it's a referral to see an orthopedic surgeon just to see what else someone can do. But I like to give it at least six weeks, and it really depends on the problem. For example, if if someone does have an Achilles tendinopathy, we know that that thing may take three to six months of consistent rehab to get back to, to baseline. So if six weeks of rehab doesn't actually help them, then I'm okay with that because I know that's going to take longer. So yeah. there's certain injuries that it's not just a, hey, let's see if get, they get better at six weeks or not. Um, but day one, we create that expectation. And if things aren't going the same way as the expectation we've created, that's when I let them know, hey, maybe go see an orthopedic surgeon and get some, some, uh, some information and see what, what they can provide you. And that doesn't mean I discharge them. I still continue with what I'm doing oftentimes as well. People think, okay, PT's done. Now it's time to go to see a surgeon. No, I still continue with what I'm doing because sometimes um, that has helped. Actually, I'm just thinking of a patient case right now where um, this lady continued to do her exercises and she was going to get a total knee replacement. I discharged her and then she just emailed me saying, hey, uh, actually things have been feeling better after we've been done. And I decided not to do that anymore. Awesome. and things like that, like the a way, there's no, like, hey, six weeks of strength training and yeah. you're done. It's not, it's not like that. Like, the person has to stay consistent and it's, it's an indefinite thing. Uh, but yeah, I would say if things aren't going the same way as we've created the expectation of on the evaluation day, then we would start having that conversation and seeing what they and I both think together, try to make it as collaborative as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To see what the next best step would be.
0: My my question would be: let's say we have an athlete that has maybe Achilles rupture or an ACL tear. There's a whole psychological component behind that. They're afraid to put force into that same region that they just recently torn. So right. how how I mean obviously there's there's programming and you know exercising the, the region to make it stronger, but what are some things that you might do to help them psychologically be more, uh, more willing to put force into that area?
2: Yeah. So you're, you're, are you referring to post-operative repairs yeah. and, um, okay. And reconstruction. So, uh, yeah, that's a huge, huge problem. Post-operative, uh, compensation where uh, they're, uh, biasing the opposite side and that's why we even see high risk of retail rates of the opposite acl after acl reconstruction just because they're using the left acl reconstruction they're using the right side so much to the point where hey it's just a matter of time before that right acl gives out right so um the number one thing is to practice repetition 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 and it's both of our responsibilities as the clinician and the patient to try to find what what works for them and you have to you have to constantly get feedback on their end as well Mm -hmm. you can kind of see by the way they're moving if they're still compensating or not i don't have force plates unfortunately Those they're kind of expensive but if i did it would be nice to objectify how much load they're putting in between each limb Mm -hmm. but uh, I'd say the number one thing is is getting that repetition in. I love BFR post-operatively because people feel like they're working very, very hard mm-hmm. when they're not putting much load into that limb. And that actually feels like psychologically they're, they're putting and stressing the tissue a lot. And mm-hmm. then when you get them into doing regular exercises, I feel like they feel more comfortable with it mm-hmm. because they've already pushed their tissues a pretty good amount with BFR. So that's another tool I like to use. Um, a lot of it though is, is going to be biasing that limb. So if I'm doing like a bridge, I'll have them do staggered stands. Same thing with like a, a squat, same thing with like a, um, a sit to stand, like these things, I'm having them bias the limb that I want them to mm-hmm. post-operative. So that way they can't really compensate and bias the opposite side uh, because that's going to be their natural tendency to do that
1: of course let's say yeah. for example let's say it's a soccer player that uh tear his acl do, doing like a quick uh, directional change do you ever let's say on the late stage rehab do you ever mimic the exact same movement that the guy got injured just for the psychological aspect and building confidence in it
2: yeah 100 percent. yeah i think mean, that's a great point I'd, i love doing that i mean that's that's what they have to do before they get back to playing that sport. And so I know uh one of our professors uh Dr. Chris Powers, he's got a lot of uh return to sport type movements and he's trying to validate it at this at this point I'm not sure what the latest is on that, but things like lateral movements, cutting, uh drop jumps, these these things are all things that you need to get back to doing and feel comfortable with before returning back to sport. I think a lot of people are returning their ACLs too early. I'm not an expert yeah. here by any means, but based on what i what I see and what I've read, uh, it seems like it's better to be safe than sorry with this kind of stuff, especially with all the work that you're putting in post operatively. Just wait a little bit longer and mm-hmm. and see how much extra uh, symmetry you can get from side to side. and like you guys are saying, even if it's symmetrical in terms of strength and you're looking at Uh, power output or force output Mm -hmm. you're still you're still looking at a psychological piece that that may not be fully addressed and so if someone's landing a little more stiff even though they have the strength just Mm -hmm. because psychologically they don't want to load that knee then you have to take that into consideration and make sure that's addressed before letting them go back to to playing soccer because they're going to be at risk of another injury so i think that you guys are hitting on really good points there
1: Yeah, there's good research. My bad. Um, Real quick, uh, just a comment. There's good research. I don't remember the exact same percentage, so I'm not going to give percentages, but they compared when they addressed the psychological aspect of ACL rehab and with people that didn't address the psychological aspect and the ones that didn't address the psychosocial or psychological aspect in the rehab Mm -hmm. were like way higher. way higher in risk to get re-injured or a re uh, ACL. So that's a huge component. And I don't know how people can miss the psychological aspect of rehab.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. But uh, I think that the repetition and getting people more comfortable with it is just a matter of time. There's mm-hmm. there's no secret shortcut to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but biasing the, op- the, the leg that you want has been a great, great strategy. Sometimes I even take the other leg completely out where I put the the, the – healthy leg or let's say the non post-op leg on Mm -hmm. top of a surface so that way when they do their jumps or their squats they have to use the leg that i want them to and it's just a matter of time before hopefully they feel comfortable with it
0: you mentioned uh for objective measures we want somewhat of symmetry between strengths on each of the legs if we're doing acl and we also want to clear any psychological barriers. Do you have any objective, like number-wise? I've heard some numbers being floated around when it comes to strength, being like for each body weight a pound, you're you should be able to do a leg extension for your ACL. Do you have any measures like that?
2: No, I, I don't have anything. Uh, I, I'm just shooting for symmetry in terms of quad strength from side to side. Okay. I use this thing called the Tindex, which uh, I basically it's it's a it's using tensile force to measure how much force you're creating right. using your quadricep. So I, I wrap it around, put it on their uh, tibia, their distal tibia, wrap it around the the table that they're on and have them try to create as much force with the quad. And I want that to be as close to a hundred percent being the, the opposite side, but who's to say that the opposite side is, is optimal as well. Right. So that's why, that's why we're, we have to make sure that they go through a lot of conditioning because maybe their other side has also deconditioned in this meantime, because they're, they might not be uh, really loading too much in general post-operatively. So that's why th- those things are, are great, but they're, it's so tough to make it. So make one specific protocol be the end all yep. be all to making right. sure someone gets back to sport. I'll look at the, hop. I use the hop test a lot as well, but mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. just like anything else, that's just a piece of the pie. I'm looking at more than just that. Like you guys are mentioning and hitting on the psychological piece, making sure they feel comfortable with it. Uh, sometimes even with the psychological piece, I have people use a brace. There's not great evidence to say that the brace itself is, is beneficial, but Mm -hmm. I think that if they feel more comfortable with it, why not let them use the brace and, and let's have them return to sport with them using something that they feel more comfortable with.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. now just to be the devil's advocate here because <laughs> yeah. um I would, I would talk to people about this and they would cringe but because you know we're in, we're not in any camp but we guess we're on the side of the camp where oh wouldn't they be depending on that brace what, what do you think about that do you think that we are installing some kind of a dependency on an external thing when it well, comes to playing so so here's here's the reality um if if they
2: feel comfortable without the brace, obviously the best would be, hey, go back to your sport because we know that the brace isn't going to do too much to prevent injury mm-hmm. so, or re- even reduce risk of injury. However, if that person doesn't feel comfortable but they've cleared all the testing, I think they look good. Psychologically, I think they're fine, but mm-hmm. they just don't feel like they're comfortable with it. Now, at that point, we can wait until they feel comfortable with it. Uh, or if they can get back to even doing something like a jog or some type of exercise on their own. Cause there's certain mm-hmm. people that in the clinic, they're fine. No brace. They do all this stuff. However, when they go home, they don't feel comfortable doing these same things at their home, which mm. I get because they don't have us as as clinicians or coaches watching them as they go through the, the exercises. Mm-hmm. However, um, if, if I'm not going to see that person for another week or two, I basically have the option in my mind of, should I allow them to use a brace? And if the brace makes them feel more comfortable, I'd rather them do the exercises Mm -hmm. with the brace than to regress everything and do a very regressed version of their HEP or home exercise program at home. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a cost analysis here right? because yeah, are you potentially putting that person at risk of depending on the brace? Yes but also it's our job to make sure that they slowly regress off of that as well and educate them. I think that's a good point too that, uh, that you bring up because letting them use the brace is, is okay, but you have to create that expectation also so when you give them the brace that, hey, this is just a temporary thing to make sure you feel comfortable with mm-hmm. going back to whatever you're doing. And then we're going to take it off eventually. Right. And so I think it's just a cost opportunity and cost analysis that you have to weigh out here where you're like okay does it make sense or not and if it's a psychological piece that all you need is to put a brace on and get them back to whatever they need to i'd say go for it as long as they look good elsewhere
1: i mean it's all about the narrative and education you use and you could say the same for mental therapy or for whatever treatment you want to use yeah. as long as the narrative's correct there's no nothing wrong with doing it for a short amount of period of time
2: yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. I mean, it's, it's like manual therapy. They can, they can feel like they need that consistently as well. So like, like you're saying, you just have to create that, that narrative uh, or expectation in their minds. So they realize where this lies in in the grand scheme of things. It's not something that they're coming in for every single day for, for five years. Yeah. <laughs> just, right. Just like a, uh a, a passive, treatment that you're using just to just to get some results to get them back to what they need to get back to
0: you brought up a great point about how there's a common there's a common narrative there's a common problem where people are afraid to do these exercises on their lonesome because they don't know if they're doing it correctly what are some ways that we can get around that or build some kind of confidence in our clients so they can do it on their own yeah so that's
2: that's a good point because actually what i've been working with i've been trying to battle this thing between what i do in the clinic versus what i give someone to do at home Mm -hmm. because oftentimes if i use like bfr for example that person is not going to be doing the same exercises at home what i'm doing with bfr are very regressed exercises and they're probably going to be able to do more progressed versions of whatever i'm doing with them in the clinic and so i've been trying to battle this thing as well between what what's good for them in the clinic versus what they can do at home. However, I think if you're going to give someone something to do at home, you should definitely have seen them go through that entire routine in the clinic or in the gym and make sure that that person's adequate with their form. They can go through that entire routine that you built them. And then, when they're home, they, they should have something to refer back to, whether it's Mm -hmm. you recording them. Um, we have an exercise library where we've allowed clinicians to send exercises to their patients and clients, uh, with very detailed, uh, videos explaining how you should perform it, where you should be feeling it and then common compensations, uh, with ability to create parameters. And so that way patients and clients can make sure that they're doing things adequately in the way that you want them to be doing them. And, uh, I think, both of those making sure uh, they're they're competent and that you've, you've given them feedback while they go mm-hmm. through the program at, in the clinic. And then also having something for them to refer back to, because oftentimes for me, even I don't see patients and clients too frequently. I don't do two to three times a week. I mean, usually I'll do like a once a week type of thing where uh, I like to have them do things on their own. That way we maximize time in the clinic versus mm-hmm. going through the exact same thing over and over in the clinic. Yeah, and that's just what's what I found to be most valuable for me and also for the people I see.
1: I think the exercise bank is huge because it's like you're helping them, but you're not, because we know self-efficacy is huge for the rehab process, right? And if we do something and they only feel secure doing it when we're like quote unquote watching them, like. We're depriving them of that self-efficacy. But if they have something they could refer to, it's kind of like you're helping them, but at the same time you're not because they're doing it alone. So that's self-efficacy. So super smart. super. Yeah.
2: I mean, it goes back to what you guys were saying with the dependency. And I don't want anyone to be dependent on seeing me. I don't want someone to feel like they have to come to see me to, to be in shape or to stay consistent with playing soccer. The goal is to get the knowledge base that I can provide and have that person be, be free. And the more I see them, the more I'm likely to create that dependency, which is, is not my end goal from a, from a rehab standpoint. Now, if I'm, if I'm doing more of a training or strength and conditioning programming, that's, that's a different story. Yes. That's, that's, uh, there's a little bit of, that. that's a whole different conversation, but, um, in terms of rehab, I, I'm on board. Dependency is not the way to go. You want, you want them to be as, is independent as possible. Exactly,
0: yeah. Definitely. <laughs> My question would be, and uh, cause we're currently making content for our page and we're seeing strides within our own content. Uh, I, was, I was just curious from your point of view, where, where, where was the big, like huge step where you're like, wow, we were making way better content now. Like, well, what what <laughs> simple fix or what trick did you start using or?
2: Yeah. Um, so there, there, there was never, I'll just say there was never one point where we were like, okay, we're, we're, we're changing the way we're doing things. Actually, this, it wasn't until recently we have, we've actually changed, changed that. But I don't, that's, that's kind of going into too much detail. I don't I don't want to go down that rabbit <laughs> hole, but I'd say, um, going back to your original question, it, it was more of what, what was it again? When, when we've noticed a change in content, like when yeah. we've we up our content. Yeah. Um, I would say once we, so there was a point a couple years ago where, we so when we started, the, many other people weren't really in this space. There wasn't even a business profiles on Instagram. Uh, there wasn't much re- rehab on on social media. Now you see all kinds of rehab professionals, and it's a good thing. I think it's just helping grow uh, awareness for everybody, and all of us together will end up uh, winning as long as the public is un- is aware of what we're doing. However, uh, about I would say a year and a half ago, uh, we we wanted to level up our content because we realized that. This is what we want to do. We want to be an online platform. And to be an online platform, we have to level up our online content. And that's the point where we got a camera. We got a nice camera. We got a, uh, wireless mics. We got mics here, too, for, for filming, recording co- podcasts, uh, audio pieces. And we, we kind of leveled up our stuff through there. And we have had uh, different members on our team, too, that help with creating infographics, uh, mm-hmm. create with post-productive work. And so that way we've, we've created a system in place versus every single day just trying to film and post content. That, that yeah. takes too much time. You have to plan everything out ahead of time. And we film a ton of content every day that we film, which is usually maybe once a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way we have content planned out for the entirety of the month. And we don't have to spend co- time every single day trying to yeah. create uh, the content pieces. Uh, but I think, I, I still think that, even though you can have the best videographer, you can have the best editing, um, content is number one still. I think if you just film on your phone, even the phones nowadays are, are crazy with how high quality mm-hmm. the, these videos are. That's that's good enough. And if, if the content is good, people will end up finding it and enjoying it. Yeah. If you can put terrible content and do all the post-productive work, that's still going to do worse than than. Very bad post productive work with great content. That's going to win. Content will win every single day. Uh, Mm. And the other piece behind content is making sure that you're posting it consistently. If not, then it's you're doing all that work just just to go back down and start from zero again. So you have to stay consistent. That's that's the other big piece behind that.
0: Yeah, polished turd is still a turd, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I I I, got. Yeah, that's it.
2: That's that's it. That's it. That's exactly it.
0: Right. my next question would be and it's something that i struggle with is i assume that our listeners or our viewers might know a certain subject but i might be speaking above their head or using vernacular that they don't know how how did you cross check your content and be like okay this is digestible for everybody to read this i try to create it as
2: simple as possible basically uh, as you as you guys work with different clients and patients too you'll realize what what con what uh language works for them mm-hmm. and that's the language that that I end up trying to adopt for the most part unless I'm talking to other clinicians that way most people will be able to understand me when I talk about these exercises on social media it's it's all patient friendly language at least I tried to, try to be for the most part mm-hmm. at first we had a difficult time trying to make it easily easy to understand and sometimes actually oversimplified it to the point where even even the average Fitness enthusiast was kind of confused, but we found a good uh, middle ground where the the patients and clients can understand what we're talking about, and at the same time, the clinician is is on board with it because it's it's not oversimplified. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the verbiage and the terminology that you use are a little bit different, and it may sound a little silly to clinicians, but at the same time, that's that's what patients and clients understand is is simplicity, and you can't over over complicate it. Even the way we write our descriptions and in our exercise library we try to simplify it so that way people understand what it is because at the end of the day the average person needs to understand if not you're not gonna yep. you're not gonna make a change
1: yeah because sometimes we're in the psycho chamber where we're always talking with like ourselves or other doctors clinicians and strength coaches and we think that general population knows what we know but the truth is like if you go out and talk with five people they barely know anything at all. No. And that's, exactly. that's like the hardest part, like simplifying, but finding a sweet spot between this is too simple. This is too complex, like, like a middle ground. And sometimes the, like the posts where we think are like s- stupid, quote unquote stupid, are the ones that are the best <laughs> ones. And it's because they're simple. And that's, yeah. I think it's just finding this, the middle ground or the sweet spot.
2: You're hitting the bell of the bell curve. And that's what, that's what you should be aiming for. If you're trying to create as much engagement and awareness as possible. Now there's certain audiences and cert- or certain, certain uh, clinicians that I know where their target is other clinicians. And that, that makes sense. And it's fine to still have conversations. Twitter is a huge platform for professionals where uh, people like to talk amongst themselves and try to figure out, and that's fine, and I think it helps grow the profession. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, necessarily think that there's no value there, but at the same time, if the goal of the, these platforms is to, are to educate the public, then let's let's hit the bell. Let's exactly. Yeah. Not, let's not just keep taking each other down and like trying to bring each other to this lower point let's all raise each other up and and create that awareness that we want within that common pub- public
1: yep yeah. so or, Nova, what do you think is the end goal with the prehab guys like how do you visualize yourselves in let's say 5 years
2: yeah. Um in the five years. Down. Five years is a lot. I mean, we don't even know. We're 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 going one quarter at a time right now because things are changing yeah. so quickly. Technology is crazy. There's so much, there's so much to it. And we're we're learning so much about it every single every day, really, because there's always a new thing uh that that pops up where you don't learn about that stuff in, in school. So uh I'd say in in five years, um I mean, there's, there's a lot of change that we want to our platform that we currently have. Um, I mean, we have a great exercise library. I think that's something that we're very, very proud of at this point. Got a HIPAA, HIPAA compliant. So all that stuff is, is clear. Um, the other thing would be to probably create more appropriate and individualized programs for the average person. There's a lot of things online right now. And I think that's a, kind of a, a, a gray area for people. Uh, Cause they don't know what to trust in terms of online programming. But I think taking, taking it to the next step with uh, having content and programs out there for the average Joe and the fitness enthusiast would be, would be our next goal. Not to take away from in-person providers, because I think people oftentimes get that confused and they think that we're trying to take away from clinicians and providers in person. Something that I wanted to clarify, and, and this is the way I think of it and I, I mean I could be wrong, let me know your guys' thoughts, but for example let's say let's say the the meditation apps like calm and headspace I feel like those are you guys you guys are familiar with those yeah like the, so those I think have, have helped bring awareness to the meditation space and the mindful space more so than prior to their development right. and I think that actually has helped with bringing more awareness to the point where uh, other providers that provide these mindfulness and meditative type sessions are becoming more popular because there's just more awareness around that piece itself. Not necessarily that that online content is taking from that because there's always individualization that you can't compete with. And I mean you, I don't know if you guys are doing any e-visits. I've done a few e-visits. It's not the same as seeing someone in person mm-hmm. um, during the, during this crisis currently. It's it's not the same. I I can't get the same amount of information, um, the personalization is not fully there, especially if you're talking about people that have chronic pain, mm-hmm. these are things that you, you would have better results with being there with someone. So it's not designed to take away from, from in-person work is, is that's always going to be needed, especially with the the work that we do as strength coaches, PTs, mm-hmm. chiro, like the, mm-hmm. these, these fields are things that are always going to need someone there.
1: Yeah. I mean, online platforms are great because you can reach people all around the world but there's just some cases like as you said for example chronic pain that just the person-to-person face-to-face interaction just has to happen yeah exactly. like just talking like in facetime or in zoom it's just not the same not the same connection it's not rapport, even close or, yeah
2: no i i completely agree and it's it's just giving people a, a piece of what they need and if it works great, if not, then, then, Hey, you need to see somebody in, in person. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the idea. And it, it's not like our platform is designed to treat diagnoses either. So we're not, we're not venturing down that territory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more of a prehab programming where it's trying to preach that proactive approach. However, we know, and as you guys probably know as well, people are not proactive as much as they are reactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they, they're likely using these programs to help with their ailments that they currently have, but that's not the, the that's not intended the goal. goal. Yeah. No. And I mean, that's going to happen regardless, but uh, the goal is to to educate and empower people while they're healthy to make sure that they don't have these issues in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what we're doing with COVID nineteen right now. We're trying to preach a proactive approach by social distancing, keeping everyone inside. <laughs> this is not a react. This is uh, the reactive approach. Is the the ventilators that they're using, all these drugs that they're trying out. Um, mm-hmm. We're we're trying to take it proactively because that that's the only way to do it with with really everything. Yep. Um, if-, if you can catch it before the problem happens it's, it's much
0: less work than actually yeah. easy, <laughs> but it seems like so much work, like from the, like when you look at it in, uh, before you have to do, it always seems like much work. For example, like, you know, I could clean this dish right now, or I can leave it for a huge stack and do it later. And it's just, yeah. you always hate yourself for doing it. <laughs> yeah. That, that's an interesting example. Cause for me,
2: I like to, I like to think of things. How can I be as efficient as possible? Okay, If I wash, a dish every single time I get it dirty sometimes that'll take me maybe three times as long as if I just wait to the end of the day and just do everything at once. Uh, but,
0: uh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's just like Tim Ferriss and batching. I, I, that's why I try to tell my girlfriend, like, no, I'm batching the dishes. Relax. (laughs) I know,
2: I know he, he likes, um, uh, trying to cause I know his, his thought too is it's kind of interesting where your brain just has a finite amount of, um, decision making that you have in a day, and you want to automate as much things as possible, and mm-hmm. that's what I try to do as well, things that I don't need to keep my brain on, I just do the same thing, like the way I make breakfast, same thing I don't think mm-hmm. about it, this is just what I do, and then the things that I need my brain energy for that's that's what I, I
0: try to use it for, not things that don't really matter yep. I'm really big on environments, and you know if you for example, if you do your work from inside your bed, you're probably not going to be able to sleep as well as if you only sleep when you enter your bedroom, you know. Uh, Do you you have an environment for yourself where you're like, this is where I'm going to get everything done? I wish right
2: now. Unfortunately I'm in my bedroom because I was out of the country and I'm doing a little self quarantine right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wish I had a better answer to that question because I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board with that way of thinking. I think environment is everything. And I, I love these little, little systems and setups that, that people have where it's like, for me, I use my blue light walking glasses when I'm in work mode, I sit down, mm-hmm. uh, or I use my standing desk and, and I, I put a block out of, a block of time designated to different projects and I have it all ready to go, but I don't have like a, a room. specifically for that at this point I just work out of my house when I do prehab work
1: I mean it's tough because like for example the bed we know like like professionals say like you only use the bed for sleep and sex right Mm. and I know that but it's like if I use the bed for everything like I study (laughs) in my bed like I program in my bed like it's just too comfortable you know like yeah (laughs) do you have problems sleeping or no uh nah not really so that's why I'm like like as long as I don't have any You're problems, fine. I'll just keep it as like that. But once I start having problems, I might
2: change. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I uh, for me, I have sleep problems regardless. It doesn't matter. I could do nothing in my bedroom. <laughs> just not happening. It's just not happening. No, yeah, I'll, I'll try this. Me- the mental dump that's actually helped me a pretty good amount. Where every night I have like just put all this all my thoughts on paper get it out. And that way my mind feels a little more clear. Yeah. Um, but even still there's always things going on in there.
0: Yeah. Do you have, I guess my final question for you is when it comes to running or help run this, this massive online platform is how, how do you set your goals up? Cause with content, we know that you can't really, it's like creativity, so you can't really force it. Right. So you mentioned you do time blocks. Like let's say you don't get something done. Do you just put it off to the next day or how does that work? Um, so
2: we definitely prioritize urgent projects and tasks versus non-urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we make sure that anything that's time sensitive, we get done the day that we need to get it done. And then everything else, there's, there's always a million different projects that are on the background. we we'll, we get to whatever we can at that point. Um, so it really depends on what the task is when it comes to content that has to be time sensitive, not mm-hmm. necessarily that it takes a lot of time actually con- content development is is one of the quicker tasks that, that we do on a daily basis um it's more like the research the back end of the website like the mm. app stuff like these these things that we're just learning are things mm. that actually end up taking more time but those those things are things that we have to prioritize and make sure that's that's how our that's what our business is based off of is is content so it's mm. it's kind of like as a PT, just not showing up to clinic for a day. Like that doesn't, doesn't make sense. Like how we, how our brand grows and we have to continue to push that. But yeah, we we block things out and make sure that we, uh, everyone does it kind of different, but um, we make sure that we get those time sensitive tasks done and we keep ourselves accountable with having weekly agendas and monthly agendas um, and making sure that we check off what we need to check off. Or else things just don't get done and you're mindlessly going through, through life. You've got to create a task list and, and make sure that you reflect every so often um, and, and see that you're moving in the right direction. I'm a big to-do list guy, man. Like I'll, I'll click it when Actual. I finish it,
1: and I'm
0: just like, yes, and let's
1: keep I going.
2: <laughs> what I want to start doing more is leaving the task that I finished to showcase myself like, hey, look, you got, you, got, you got a lot of stuff done today. But I just take it off. I just try to keep that list as thin as possible. But then sometimes I'm like, I just worked for 12 hours. I don't even know what I got done. But I know I got a lot of stuff done. So it would be nice to go back and look and see, hey, I, these are
0: the things that I finished today. Just drinking a beer, staring at your list of accomplishments. Like, yes, today. Today was a great day. Yeah. (laughs) Productivity. I want to thank you, man. This was awesome. I learned a lot. Cool. Yeah, that was good. Where can everyone find you? Uh, So, uh, the Prehab guys were on
2: Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok now, LinkedIn. We have audio experiences, our podcast. The PrehabGuys.com is our website. You can go to PrehabGuys.com. That's where our exercise library is. Um, okay. We also have an app uh, that you can find on there as well. Uh, I think that's it. So the pre, we got the PrehabGuys.com on on all the platforms. You throw yeah. a rock, you'll it. I'll, I'll link that to the show notes. Awesome. Perfect.